it's 20 years since I had this new calling on my life. So I'd like to talk about how that started and what that brought me into and then now how it's similar but different now. So it's all about the city and it, how it's evolved. Perfect. So, so I don't know. 20 years, did you say? Since... 20 years since God started impressing on me something that I needed to do. In this interview, I chat with Debbie Dodds, who for 30 years has felt called to serve those in poverty in the city of Toowoomba, Queensland, Australia. I'm sure you'll be touched by Debbie's heartwarming stories. In this three-part interview, we'll kick off with her work as a chaplain at Harlexton State School. Let's start from that. So you've been in this... Did you move to the city 20 years ago? No, no. Yeah. No, we, we moved, uh, 20, like, 29 years ago. 29 years ago. This... In... Uh, what's the date today? The 16th of January. Tomorrow's 28 years that we've moved... Uh, 29 years that we moved here. Because I was pregnant and then had my, uh, Luke... Uh, what's his name? Um, Tim, and he's 29 in April. Yeah, yeah well, Okay. And what did you originally move here for? Ross got transferred. He worked for the DPI. Okay. And he got a transfer and a promotion. And I, Luke had just had his, the year before, brain tumour, brain cancer, lots of... Um, so he was really quite physically um, disabled. And, um, and somewhere in there I found out I was pregnant. So we ended up having an 11- and 9-year-old and then, and then Tim, surprise child. And um, so the f- those first few years, I was a high school chaplain at uh, Bundy High, but just a voluntary one for two years. And I remember when we came here to Toowoomba, we'd stopped at the lights at one station. All these young people crossed the road and I started crying. And Ross said, oh, what are you crying about now? Because I cried a bit in those days. And I went, look at those young people. They don't even know how wonderful I am. Because in Bundaberg, I'd done R- RE in three schools with a team of 15 from nine different churches. It's the first time I'd worked in Unity. And it was a, it was a real rarity in Australia. And it's interesting because we have people talk about Toowoomba and their Unity. But the thing that they talked about across Australia then was what Bundaberg was doing in the high schools. And um, we would do big dramas and we'd have a TV screen, a big heavy thing and we do it was musical and we'd have hundreds of kids at once in the assembly hall it was very exciting so I'd done that for six years so the kids knew me from that and then two years as a chaplain at one of the schools so I just felt like no one knew me and no one knew what I was made for and now I was back having babies again plus getting over the the trauma of of having a kid with cancer and um and so it was um a few years of just trying to feel like is this home? I, I miss Bundaberg. Bundaberg is half the size. And I do remember saying, Lord, I felt like I could embrace that town. I'll never be able to embrace this place. But obviously now I do. It takes a few years to settle in and realise, hang on, this is where you've brought us. And, I, and that praying was part of, OK, I need to know this whole city. And I would drive through and pray and be crying because it was, you know, the places I went were ugly and scary looking and I only imagined the kind of people that lived there very judgmentally um yeah and what what were those scary places like how can you describe say, okay. just take Harleston for example can yeah. you describe well because I never went there but I did afterwards um just their yards are full of rubbish and mess and you'd see people um in them um dr- some of them drunk already um families fighting, you know, there would be evidence of brokenness around the place. And I used to joke that there were some places that you, I didn't want to drive through because they'd steal your hubcaps and even, and that's even while you're driving. <laughs> that's how I felt it would be. Um, just really, I get, guess, dirty and, and evidence of um, poor families, but families that um, had no... Uh, it's like with generational poverty, there's generations that have never ha- that haven't had jobs, and so there's boredom, and they sit around the home, and they and they don't have pride in their place. They don't know how to keep clean. So there was evidence of all that everywhere. 
So yeah. often, like often in Australia, brokenness is hidden behind this sort of affluent yeah. facade. But I, yeah. in this particular suburb, yeah, they're, they're, it was on display. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, halfway through my years at Harlixton, I was Middle Ridge wanted to call me. Um, they actually asked if I would go there, and I was going, yeah, let's get out of this. But then I went and saw my principal and I said, I'm considering this. And she screamed. Do you remember Leonie Holkin? Do you ever met her? Anyway, she, might, yeah. she was really involved with uh, when they went and did work at the school and did their big 300 people transformation. But she, um, she screamed and then she said, OK, now I'll be professional. And we talked for an hour. And I, and she said, look, I said, look, Harlickson hasn't got the the monopoly on broken kids. And she said, no, that's true. She said they, they would be going through so much of what we're, our families go through. She said, but the one thing that's different is they have the resources to know where to go for help. Our families get lost in that and, and you're one of their resources. And so when we finished, she said, I want you to go and, and spend the weekend praying. And she said, um, pray about whether you were called to chaplaincy or called to chaplaincy in Harlexton. And by the end of the weekend, I realised I was called to poverty. And the poverty that was evident in that school was really where I was called to. I didn't... I think it would have been good for six months to go to an affluent school with lots of kids where the families were really involved, whereas these families were so fractured. Um, and disappointment was my everyday at that place. And their programs were great and there was, there was academics and music, you know, all those things that for six months would have been really thrilling, but... What I was really called into, I would have longed for that again because it doesn't take much to make a difference in the in the middle of that mess. You only have to be kind, and and it changes some people's world. So, so that call yeah. to poverty. How, how did, as you're praying over this weekend, what was it that clarified that call for you? What was it a particular scripture or a situation or? Oh yeah, my scripture. Um, well, always I've had the the Luke four about um, what Jesus was called to that I should probably mention um, to to free the captives and the, bring sight to the blind, and I just saw a blindness that maybe I could give some sight to um, that I that those who are lost or imprisoned with something maybe I could introduce them to people that love them that could help them in that imprisonment that kind of thing yeah. And I do remember someone who was involved in Middle Ridge said they've got they didn't want um, shine at the time. They said we don't have any problems with their girls. We don't need shine. And I'm going, oh, so they're blind in that way. At least our school. Someone said a chaplain that came from Highfields and spent a day with me one day. She said I I long to work in a church like you, a school like yours, because we've got problems that no one's willing to admit, and we hide. And she said, but yours is like a big open weeping saw that everyone's willing to say, we need help. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's, there's, a, there's a thrill about the people willing to say, so these other schools start at level one, I'm like at level four because they're already going, we're a mess. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can do? Mm-hmm. So you can step into that a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you feel this call from the Lord to enter into situations of poverty, of overt poverty, and you were a chaplain at Harlexton for how many years? Thirteen. Thirteen years. Um, can you describe, I mean, you have sort of already that, I'm guessing it's not just economic poverty, there's mm. other forms of poverty yeah. that you experience yeah. there. Can you? So that? relational, so there's a lot of families that didn't have anyone on, that had their back. Um, the Indigenous families would have extended family, but they were often very toxic. Um, but and then, but then there are a lot of other families that, because I found a lot of the people in that world would, f- when something went wrong for them, they would fight in revenge, and so they were always paying each other back. So then, burning all the bridges, so then wouldn't have anyone in their world because they, they didn't, they couldn't trust anyone, and they couldn't be trusted. And so I found a really big lesson that I tried to teach parents and kids is is how not to 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 be angry enough to make someone pay Mm. you know I I used to they they never really used to get what forgiveness was until you actually I remember one girl stole money from me over I was telling Ross yesterday he'd forgotten about this 
over two terms, she would just go to where my locker was, which I couldn't lock, my unlocker locker. Um, and she used to help me in the parent room doing brekkies and was one of my closest parents. And she would go in and sneak. So we all had cash in those days. Just a, a tenner, never a fiver, <laughs> ten or a twenty or something. And it was just a little bit to make me think, Duh. oh, did she have gone through my money? And it took a while. And then I'm thinking, I think someone's taking my money. And um, she reminded me yesterday that she feels like she still owes me. Like I've known her for oh, since 2005. Yeah, yeah, because I have this. I'm not going to give up on these people that cause me pain (laughs) Um, if I have Jesus in my life then the giving up isn't really an option like I have a few people in my life that have really caused me great anxiety but I would rather put up with the anxiety than give up on them because there's not many people in their world and this is one of them and um, she probably stole I think it was just under $500 over a big amount of time and when I realized it was her I put a sign on my bag and said Donna I am so disappointed in you and then she realized I knew and she just hid away and and then she said I'll pay you back $10 a week I knew she wouldn't and I talked to her about I said I forgive you and she said why would you forgive me and then I talk about Jesus forgiveness and I've, so I've talked about that maybe five different times with her. And um, she, she doesn't live here anymore. She lives down at Logan. But she stayed with me once when Ross was in hospital um, to help me. But, I mean, I was really helping her. But, yeah, that, so it's it's that so many people don't have anyone. And then there's mental health and poverty. Of, mentally, they, they have just been damaged so much they don't know where to go. And so when at Vision, Ross and I, every fortnight, would put on a lunch for parents I knew that were struggling with depression or anxiety or, you know, wanting to hide away. And they would actually allow us to love them for an hour and a half over lunch and and hear their stories and stuff. Mm. Um, so we, yeah, having knowing the families in Harlixton was so good for us because it, and that's something I miss now is... We had people on tap that I could always just love and now I have to go looking for them because <laughs> every day there was another family to love or another child or you know, another child to give a mentor to. You know. so, uh, yeah, so it's, and it was about role models. So I think there was a poverty in, in people they could turn to that actually would um, give them a dream. I found they were dreamless. Um, a lot of my families didn't know how to hope for something and so in giving their child a mentor this person who came from a life that achieved and you know they're older now they've got time and they started helping these kids dream big we've had kids who've gone travel to another country that never would have except that they started this dream of their travels and um just things like that so i guess the giving them a a a world that was bigger because their worlds were so narrow Poverty of ideas and hopes and dreams, yeah. And when you're a chaplain in a school like that, you're, um, you know... You're... Are we recording? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know we were recording. That's, that's... I thought this was for pre- preparations. No, this is very, very <laughs> okay. Right. That's, that's what you want. You want okay. It. It's uh, when you get the least subconscious when you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I should have said that. I just... I was thinking, oh, he's doing a lot of prep before we go into it. This is great. We're we're up and running. Um, Did you feel like the church or a church had your back while you were doing this work? Or did you feel alone in this work? Um, So we were were leading a church that was in the city and then moved to the suburb where uh, the school was. And um, they were really, really involved as far as offering um, mentors for the kids. But there was another church. So when when I first started the school, across the road was a church that had, before I was a chaplain, had um, had been involved in lots of programs, running lunchtime clubs, all that. So together, me as a chappie and them with their people that were so available, we were this formidable team. The kids always thought that was my school, um, but um, my church because I was so involved with them. But so they gave us a lot of mentors. They they would do um they would come over and do lunches and uh so that was the biggest um 
they're also fairly like there was a couple hundred, whereas in our church there was probably 60, 70. And um, really available for the kids. So, yeah, really felt like they were the ones I could run to. When you're working in a, in a school like this where there's so much need, so much poverty of the different forms you described, how do you not burn out or get compassion fatigue? <laughs> or like, Is that something you experience? And how do you draw on the compassion and the empathy that's necessary to actually connect with people? Yeah, um, very... It's a thing that you circle around all the time. I remember one time feeling I had nothing to offer anymore. There was, like, I was, I felt depleted. And then I felt like the God, I felt that God gave me this picture of this huge big brick wall. And, like, he handed me this tiny little, is it a chisel? Is it a little, a, that you hack away with? <laughs> Whatever it's called. And, and I felt like he said, just hack away. And every, little part of the brick that's broken is a part of the wall breaking down. You do your bit and I'll look after that. And so I thought every day when I just did a little bit was adding up. Um, so then I didn't feel like giving up. But I do also remember a time I had a prayer team and you really, really need a prayer team that I felt like I knew too much in my head. I'd heard too many revolting, sad, heart-wrenching stories about children being abused and and things not being done and um, kids being uh, child safety, having to remove children where I felt like, oh, haven't we got, couldn't we do something else? And I just knew too much and I felt like my brain was going to explode because of the, I guess, the, the, the filth that I, that I saw in, in humanity. And I got onto my prayer team and I said, if you don't pray for my brain, I don't know if I can last. And I felt... It took a week, but I just every day felt like there was a little bit of a ray of sunshine coming through into the dark places in my head. Um, so the support of people praying is just crucial. And um, so I lasted 13 years, but even at, at the end of that, I knew that it was time to finish. I knew it's, it's always good when you know that you're called out, you don't leave too early, because I felt really at peace by it. Um, it was sad. But there was a real peace and afterwards there wasn't this, oh, if only I'd, I, I should have done this, I didn't finish well. Finished really well and it was very complete, I think. Mm. But um, those 13 years were life-changing for me mm. and hopefully for some other people that we met along the way. Yeah, I was going to ask, what did you discover about Jesus from those families and kids that you worked with? Wow. I found... Because I saw so, I had so many Christians step into my school to help. Um, I, I saw the touch of Jesus on, on people's lives, um, who who just stepped in and gave of themselves. And so I saw evidence of of Jesus using his the hands and feet of these people. So it wasn't just me, it was a team of people because one chaplain can't, can only do a little bit, but I had this amazing team. At one stage I had 43 mentors in a school of 200. So a quarter of the kids had a grown-up that, that could love them. But I saw the sacrifice of Jesus in in the way some of these people sacrificed their time and their effort, their money, um, their own families, they would bring their own families in to love a school family. Um, but I saw too that if we just listen, I feel like, you know, Jesus is always wanting to hear from us. We can run to him about anything. If we can be that to someone, there's such a need for someone to hear. I feel like too many people don't get heard and so that's part of why their life isn't working because they didn't matter to anyone to hear their story. And so I would I would try to learn how how the Holy Spirit listens to my heart and I would try and listen to them in their struggles. Sometimes I, I would disagree totally with what they were saying, but I just, they needed to say. And so I needed to hear and validate them. And so I think there's so much of what, where God is just saying, you can do this, and I was saying that to these people. Believing in them the way God believed in me, um, it's a huge, 
empowering of the people when you can do that. Yeah, I was going to ask, when sometimes people, it seems, find themselves in adverse situations because of their own foolish choices. You know, and how do you... Yeah, how do you know how to tread? How do you know when to suggest that you know you've been a fool, or when to yeah. just listen and validate and yeah. you know just recognize somebody's situation? You know the difference. You know what I mean. I think I think we need to win the right to be heard, and so it's all to do with relationships. And because I was involved in a small school, I was able to spend a lot of time with the parents as well as the children. In a bigger school, it's really just the children and the staff, um, and so. Once a relationship had been built on trust, because so many of the families I worked with didn't know how to trust people, and rightly so, um, when there was a trust built, I then felt I could be honest with them. I used to um, invite a lot of the mums along to a thing called Serious Fun that we used to, to run, where, which was a ministry to the mums. There was so much being done for the teenage girls, but the mums were saying, what about us? And in those times, we could collectively talk about the decisions that wreck your life or um, or what depression does and how we can, what support we can give them in their depression. Um, and a lot of them then would admit um, in a group setting with each other where they'd gone wrong. So I felt it was hearing from the, the others with the same problem also helped. It wasn't just me being, oh, look, I've got the answers. And so together we discovered and I saw amazing changes in lives because of that. Yeah. Yeah, I was perhaps before we move on from the chaplaincy season of your life. Can you? Is there a particular story of redemption that strikes you from that oh, time? Oh yes. Yes, makes me want to cry. And this lady says, I can tell her name. So her name was Cheryl, and she was my age. She was a grandmother and a mother, so she she had quite a few children, and her oldest child came to the school with her children. But mum had fostered a child later in life, and he also was in grade seven. In those days, grade seven was at the school. And so I got to know her. She walked into the school, and she was a big woman with tats all over and facial piercings. And, and so we were. she was probably 50. I was probably, it was when I, I started at the school in my 40s, and now 20 years later. Um, but it, this was, we were both in our early 50s, and she also limped, and it turned out she'd been in a really bad car accident and had a bar in her leg. And so she just looked like something to run away from. But I was just drawn to her. There was this rough diamond. She swore like, I don't know what. But she started to get really sick and would collapse at school and fell over in the gutter once. And some of my families fell in the gutter for other reasons, but hers was, it turned out she had a, a brain tumour, a benign one, but it was causing her lots of problems. I would visit her in, in her house and she ended up in hospital. So she's in hospital for nine days. And the opportunity that chaplains get visiting people in hospital is so good. Her daughter would visit her in the morning and I would spend all afternoon with her so she wasn't on her own. So for nine days I visited her and got to know her really well. And she wanted to ask all these questions about God and it turns out she used to go to church. She was a Christian woman that used to take all these homeless kids to this church. It was in Brisbane. And they didn't want those kind of people because that really mucked up their demographic. And so she just got so angry at Christians that she stormed out, gave up on God and um, other Jesus believers, followers. And so she was just angry. So then she meets this Christian and she's going, she wanted to shock me. She wanted She wanted to push me away because... Christians reject you and I just kept turning up and in that those nine days she um, she started having dreams about and God was just calling her and I turned up one day and she'd taken all her piercings out and um, I said oh you look so different she said oh, if only I could take my tattoos off she said I realized he he made it aware to me during the night that I'm a rebel and I want to stop rebelling and she said would you show me how to fall in love with him again. What an honour. And so we still have this amazing relationship, um, probably 15 years down the track. And um, she lives now in Townsville. And I visit her a couple of times when she's nearly died because of this tumour still. And I've sat with her in the hospital and sung God songs over her and we've got this really close relationship that wouldn't have happened without the constant being able to turn up each day and show her I'm not giving up on you. 
just like God hasn't given up on you. So, yeah. Great story. Yeah. In part two of this interview, we talk about Debbie's work amongst prostitutes and sex workers with the ministry called Rahab. So I, um, I asked to be part of the team. They allowed me in. They wanted this old person um, because all the other girls in the team were in their late 20s, early 30s, and they needed someone motherly. Um, and uh, I started to, to go with them. There was, there's only one um, strip club and one uh, legal brothel in um, registered brothel in the town and so we go on outreach every three weeks to that so I was part of that team so it's been six years now and um, interesting that I was in a school that was with really poor struggling families who were poor financially majorly and these girls aren't struggling financially they're in the in this job because they can they have the opportunity to earn a lot of money but there's other poverty there's there's this, I hear girls tell me that they feel like their soul is being crushed in that role and yet they keep going. Um, once again, it's about building trust over a long time. You don't see great um, results quickly there because you're only seeing them for some minutes. Um, at, the, at the strip club, there's a multitude of girls that are running in and out and so you see them for some seconds, some minutes. Um, at the at the brothel, we get to sit in the back room with them for up to an hour and a half. So some of those girls we get to have really long conversations with. So relationships grow quicker and deeper. Um, and it's, I love it and I hate it at the same time. But there's been some things that have happened there that are mind-blowingly good and bad um, that keeps me turning up. Um, so the first three years I was part of the team, now I head the team up and I just watch my girls doing an amazing job of what they can, what they hear and what they know. We did we pray beforehand and after and debrief because there's a, sometimes there's a lot of debriefing that needs to to happen. Um, but the girls are just they just keep turning up, just being res, reliable. Hopefully, building relationships so they can meet for coffee afterwards with some of these girls, which we've been able to do, and that's when you really get to know. I mean, they're not real honest in front of each other. They're not going to say, I hate this job. They'll go, no, it's great. We've got a family atmosphere here. It's lovely. And then they'll tell you the truth later when there's just one-on-one. Yeah. So that's a very different environment to go from, from a primary school to, um, yep, yep. to prostitutes and yes. yes. Uh In the school, you talked about just how, I don't know, the need, the people knew that they needed, there was... The needs were so obvious yep. and it was so overt and it was, you know, just right in front of your eyes. Now you're in a place where maybe it's, maybe the girls don't even know they, they need That's right. anything. So was, does that require, I mean, you talked about the commonality of building trust and relationship. Yeah. Does, are, there, are there other sort of strategic things that shift your mindset to meet a different kind of poverty? Yeah. Or how would you describe this poverty? You talked about poverty of spirit. Yes, yes, um, totally. Um, there, there's, yeah, it's all internal because on the outside they're doing real well. And, and you find that more than half of the girls are living lies. So there's this deceptive thing. Um, so they're, by living lies. Okay, they're lying to their family what, about the job they're doing. Uh, I talked to one girl one night. She'd been doing it for about five years. And she said she had a three-year-old girl and she lied to her about where mummy was going. She lived in Brisbane but would come up here to do this job so no one would know her in Brisbane. So her family, her wider family, didn't know what she was doing. And then she said, and now I've got to go into that room and pretend to a man that I want to be there. And she said, I am sick of lying. And I was really glad she got to that place and it wasn't long after that she got out of the industry. But what damage has been done in that time, not just to her but in the lives of people that she's lied to? Because, I don't know... I've lied about where I've hidden the Tim Tams. That's about as bad as it gets. And I feel bad about that. Or maybe some years ago, maybe if I spent some money, I didn't tell my husband exactly how much it was. Not anymore. We haven't got any money to spend. But, you know, the lies we live are really tiny little fibs that 
we shouldn't tell. But they're living lies that it's all wrapped around deception. And so I don't know how they unravel that because it must eat away at you. It must. There's a shame. Yeah. They would not admit that. But when, when you get them aside, you start to see that. I've just been really involved in helping a girl who has now got very bad mental health issues and is now drinking a lot and it's because of how she feels about herself. And I don't know, she was living here but now has moved down to Victoria, so I can't personally be much of a help to her. But we set up, there was a church that helped her with some things as well and we would get some food to her on the weeks where she couldn't turn up for work and didn't have any other work. And emotionally I was just there often for her. Um... But it was it was the result of living this life that we pretend is okay, but really it's affecting the very depth of who they are. Hmm. What what do you think? Uh, you talked about yeah, having to lie, living a false life. Are there other symptoms or um, side effects of this kind of life that that really just yeah yeah make it an unhealthy place to work? Yeah, so. I know I'm not a real statistical person. Um, many people do know um, how to quote statistics, but I know that it's in the 90% that the girls that are working in this industry have been sexually abused when they were younger. And so they they don't... They, they haven't been given a real picture of what love can be, of, of tenderness and and a nurturing relationship with the opposite sex. But also some of them are now feeling like, well, I was controlled then, now I will control. And so they go into this feeling like, I'll call the shots. But from what I know, they're still not calling the shots. It's still the client that does. And they still come across abuse. They still There's still some awful things that happen. And these are just the ones in a registered brothel. There are so many unregistered ones working from homes in this in this city. Um, and so there's, there's this underbelly... Um, area of of lives that well they're not even safe in those places that the only good thing I can think of is at the brothel is at least there's a safety there's a manager that looks out for them um, fortunately we've one of the things that we've tried to put in place one of the strategies is to really get to know the manager so that they know what we're available for and we've had managers ring us up and say can you come in I'm worried about a girl or or I have one at the moment who just is adorable and she contacts me often to tell me how the girls are going and uh, and let me know if there's someone that we should pray for now she's not a praying person but loves that we pray so I think getting to know the managers and and building a really strong relationship there, they know who to turn to, um, whereas the girls often don't admit that um, because they pretend they're okay. But, you know, some of them turn to drinking, and it's all because, I think, even in front of all the other workers that they, they work with, they're pretending that they're okay, but when I'm really honest with myself, I don't know that I can cope with this. Um, there's a, There's... With most of them, there's only a short amount of time where they can actually keep doing this because it's so, it eats away at so much of them. Um, and when you when they get really, really honest and talk about how they're treated, I don't know how they turn up. And so we, our role is to keep building their worth and remind them that there's something that is, has got such purpose. And, and we, we can't tell them to leave, but we're hoping that as we build that into them, they start to realise I'm better than this. And we do have those that happen, that, that do that. We got called once by a um, manager to say, I'm really worried about a girl. Are you able to come in? It's, I know it's not your outreach time, but can you come? Well, they didn't say outreach. You're visiting. And we turned up as a girl who's 20 and uh, her boyfriend had so many bills from drugs that he was sending her there two days a week to earn enough money to pay for his debts. And uh, she'd been there five weeks. And because we would go on a weekend and she would go during the week, we'd never met her before this. And um, she just sobbed and sobbed and said to me, I, I'm here, I have to earn some money, and so if I, don't, if I go home having not earned, we could lose our house. And she had a little girl as well tiny little girl um so she said it's important I do but I don't want to do this and so I've there's this fight in me and she said I feel like everyone is owning me and she said my soul feels like it's just cracking 
And then um, while we were there, there was a man that wanted to to book her. And when she walked away, she looked at me like this terrified child. And I felt like I just wanted to grab her and take her home. Um, I gave her my phone number. I said, would you ring me? Please ring me as soon as you, you feel like you need to talk to me. She rang me the next day and we met. And she just talked about the mess of her life. And I told her what I, what, what I wanted to tell her about how God saw her. And she said, I want to believe that I so do. And I said, look, I don't know the answers to this, but I know God does. And she told me that they owed $3,000 in immediate debts. Um, and she was going she was going to stay that night and then go home the next day. I went to church the, a couple of days later, and I got up and told my story to the church. And uh, afterwards, and I said, she's turning 21, can we put on a birthday party for her? And um, they, they yelled, yeah! So um, I arranged all that. And an older lady in our church went round at morning tea time, and we probably had like 50 or 60 people there, a lot of them unemployed, some of them old, with are now retired. And this lady raised the $3,000 that morning. So she met with them and paid their bills. You don't give them the money. She walked around and paid the bills with them. And that day they, they were called by the church to just say goodbye to Ross and I, but we had this party set up and all these people and presents and food and a room all done up, and she just wept. And um, it was so special. And it was good for us. It was it was great for her, and it was good for us as a church body, you know. Um, and a few months later, she realised she was she didn't need to be with this guy. She was better than that. And she still contacts me. It's six years down the track. She still contacts me, and she said, "I think I'm alive because of Rahab." They're the things that keep me going on those weeks when nothing seems to happen or it's just yucky or it's boring and you go, really, are we getting anywhere? I remember those times I go, we've got to keep going for the girls that need to hear that they're worth something, you know, mm. that God sees them and knows them and loves them. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great story about the church, your congregation giving support uh, and really embracing um, that, that lady. Have you, I mean, ministry to prostitutes and strippers is an unusual ministry. <laughs> yeah. Have you, do you ever feel pushback from Christians or from the church? Or have you always felt, yes, no, we need to be doing this? Or what's the sort of, over the last six years, what's been the tenor of conversation? Yeah. <laughs> so fortunately, the people I hang around with are the ones that think this is great. I can't do it, Deb, but isn't it great that you're part of this? Or here's some money, or I'll bake some biscuits, you can take them, that kind of thinking. But the, there are a lot of churches and a lot of people that don't get it. I have um, a relative, a Christian relative who goes, what is wrong with her, me, that she would even go there? Um, and what a waste of time. And um, I think she thinks that I'm, um, I've got an ego problem and I just think I want to go there to say that I'm, oh, I visit the brothel. Uh, but she um, and many other people will say, well, when you go there, do you tell them to get out? Do you, do you tell them that it's bad for them? And I'm going, what? And so there, there are quite a few Christians that feel like we should... We shouldn't just be building a relationship. We should be telling them what's right and wrong. And I, I get what they're saying, but that's up to God to do that. And I think if we just keep loving them, hopefully they might see some truth that God wants to reveal to them. Because if we're telling them, then we're going to alienate them. We're going to get into trouble at the brothel. I had one girl who one time some girls were saying some really foul things and we're just sitting there putting up with it. And this girl looked at me and she said, thank you. And I went, what? She said, the things I have known from the church have been really judgmental. I don't know what her background is with that. But she said, I have watched you girls. You don't judge us. You put up with some awful things that we do and say here. And I just want to thank you that you keep turning up. I went, and that matters even when... Some Christians are saying, you're not doing enough. I believe we're doing enough because that has more of a... There's more inroads into their heart that way if we just keep loving them. and We can, we can just cry and scream in the car afterwards about what we've just heard or seen, but with them, we want them to know that they... For that moment, 
are the most important person in our world to listen to, to treat with love. And, and we take food and, and um, presents at Christmas and Easter and, and we try and put something in there about what Jesus means to us. Every time we just... And we, and we used to have really big Christmas parties, big dinners um, that a church would put on for us that have, haven't worked since COVID. But every one of those, we're just hoping we might be breaking down a wall or showing them that really the the body of Christ that really I see is following Jesus wants to love you. We we don't want to hold whatever you're doing against you, we, but we want you to see what you can be. Yeah. So you obviously well received by the the girls. Like, is there ever a time where they don't want to? talk to these strange Christian people or is, are they genuinely mostly happy that you're there? So I don't go to the the vault, the um, strip club very often. Uh, we have kind of two teams and there's, there's a lot of, um, because they don't know us as well and they're very transient, a lot of people from Brisbane and the Gold Coast, so they don't know us and so there are some very suspicious girls there. There's a... Um, a cohort that love us to pieces and the managers would go, yeah, you're here, this is great. Um, but what I do know is at the brothel and so every now and then we're meeting new girls all the time because it's a very, they travel around, the girls don't stay in one place for too long because they don't want to get known. Um, so there'll be girls that we've never met before but very often the other girls have told them about us and I've had girls say things like, yeah, we've had girls who will not talk to us. They'll put their headphones on and just lie on a on a recliner and just not talk. And then there are others who you could tell are they they'll say hello and they'll eat the platters we bring, but really I'm not going to talk to you. But mostly we have this bunch of girls that just love us, and um, we I've had girls. We've turned up and they go, oh, I've been wanting to meet you. I've heard about you for so long. This is so good to meet you at last. One girl said to me one time. All the other girls had gone out. There was just she and I. And um, and she said, would you have done, been the one that did the biscuits that were in this can, in this tin? And I said, oh, yeah, I made them. And she said, oh, I've been wanting to meet you since then. She said, one, I love the biscuits and I stole them. She said, I had a couple, everyone had a few, but then I hid them in my gear and took them home because it made me feel loved. It's the kind of thing my mother would have done, but my mother's, no longer around and she said but people talk about Rahab here like you actually care about us and it really and I'm so glad for after a year of hearing this because we obviously didn't arrive at the same time she was there she said I get to meet you so we have this (laughs) with this reputation that we've got to continue to keep feeding Um, but there are people that have come from higher uh, higher up um, up north in Queensland who've heard about us and have come to Toowoomba to see what a brothel that allows church ladies to come into, what's it like? Isn't that great? That's great. <laughs> so, yeah. Have you, what, again, in terms of what you learn about Jesus from this kind of ministry, yeah, do you, what have you discovered about who he is and have you ever seen Jesus <laughs> through these girls and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know the very first time I went, the, my, I'd never, obviously never been in anything like this before. I turn up and we're sitting down, there's five girls sitting, and I felt like this is where Jesus would be. It was a really spiritual moment for me. I got home to tell my husband, I went, I can't tell you how much that felt like we were right in the place that Jesus had called us. And I'm going, I can't wait to go back. Um even though my heart hurt the whole time. And there are times when girls will will ask questions and listen to us and it's like, oh, my goodness, maybe someone has <laughs> loved them through the years and now they're actually meeting someone that's got time to talk about Jesus and they've wanted to know for so long. So there's a hunger in some of them as well. We uh, One time we brought... Uh, we gave one of the managers a Bible for her birthday. It's kind of in your face. And um, 
the Bible looked really pretty. And I said, can I have a look at that? And it was the ribbon, you know, you have ribbons in the Bible. It was open up. It was in the Rahab story. And I said, oh, how clever that you, uh, you had this ready. And she said, no, no, no. When I bought it, it had the ribbon in the Rahab story. And one girl, and we were, wore T-shirts that said Rahab. And this girl said, Rahab's in the Bible. What's a Rahab? And so I said, well, it's actually a prostitute that cha- that saved a whole nation. Of- and this girl went forward and she said, are you telling me a prostitute did something good? And I went, of course. And she said, well, tell me about it. And then the five girls got really close to us and heard, I to- we had a Bible study, <laughs> and I told the story of Rahab and how she was in the lineage to Jesus and they're going, no way. And in the middle of this, we have a client who turns up who wants to meet the girls and the manager saying, okay, girls, come out and introduce yourselves. And one girl got on there and she said, not yet. We're just, we're, when we're finished. And they wanted to finish this story before they even went out. And I went, man, there's this hunger. Yeah. There's this, they, they wanted to hear that a prostitute actually did something good in the world because they hear so often about what they aren't. Um, and that same night we were out in this back area where there's these whiteboards and on one whiteboard was, you know, health and and cleanliness and everything and there was nothing on the other board and this manager that we'd just given the bible to said um can you guys put your favorite verse up there because later on we'll we'll read it together i'm going what were it really you betcha i wanted to put 25 verses up there and um she did she sat with the girls and they read from the bible and i'm going really i the creativity of our god amazes me and he just he has these amazing ideas and sometimes we get to see them played out um and one time one time a girl left the industry and wanted to go to university she lived in Ipswich she was the angriest girl I'd ever come across she was she would spit at people with anger um but somehow she was really nice to me um I guess I'm just a nurturer so please don't hurt me. Um, and I, I contacted her and I said, is there anything we can get for you to help you with the university? She said, well, I need a laptop. I haven't got one. I went, right, we'll do it. And so my son had a laptop that he hardly ever used. And so he said, so Rahab bought that off him really cheap. And I said, will you come with me to set her up with in this um, with her laptop and so we drove down to Ipswich and she had a husband now that really confuses me when a husband when a married couple and she's working in the sex industry but I knew that he had worked he'd been in the army and he had PTSD and I he couldn't work and so she went out to work in this industry and he hated it but he didn't know what else to do to make to for the bills to be paid so now that she was going to uni he was really excited about that we turn up Luke sits down to go through the laptop with her. I'm a soldier's daughter, so I'm talking army with him. It was perfect. And then at the very end, I just felt with this angry girl that I wanted to pray. And I said, "Um, can I just pray for you? And she grabbed the laptop and she said, why do you want to pray? And I went, she's not going to throw it at me, is she? And I said, well, I heard you talking about how nervous you are and it's really a huge thing. I just want to pray for that. And she went, oh, what a good idea. And so I got to pray for her. And at the end, the whole four of us just all hugged together the husband said thank you thank you for being this for my wife and she just she just couldn't stop saying thank you I've never heard her say thank you it's usually like she just wipes you and we left driving in the car coming home and Luke said it doesn't take much to make an imprint on someone's life when you're just doing Jesus work and I said just kindness to some people they didn't have friends because they she was one a really abrasive person but in the role that she did a lot of people knew what she did that she didn't have many friends and that friendship that was built over some years through Rahab allowed us to do that and I just saw it's like I went one to you God that was so amazing you know a win so there's little things that opportunities that I that I feel like God gives us to show us a little bit more like I'm working on these lives, you know. These these are, girls are precious to me and I, whatever you can do in my name, we're going to do together and, and hopefully expand the kingdom. I'm really looking forward to seeing who is in the kingdom that I've met through this because of just a little bit of turning up and yeah. loving them with hopefully Jesus' love.
Finally, we talk about how Debbie and her husband have been leading a church among those who suffer from social disadvantage. So you mentioned, you know, while you're doing this ministry, dark places, you've also you and your husband are leading a church um, during all this time. Um, so we finished when COVID closed. Yeah. So for three, three and a half years of my being at the brothel, we were, yes. and and we were in the same kind of area as at yeah. the same suburb. Yeah. Can you compare and contrast leading a church to ministering to these poverty situations? Are there similarities? Do you have the same kind of people coming to your church or, you know, um, yeah. I don't know. Can you speak into that for a little bit? Totally. Um, so we, part of the reason we uh, moved our church to this same suburb was its industrial area. It was near a railway line. It was an old hall. And we wanted to be a church that wasn't, um, wasn't, what's the word? Threatening. So that you could, so that I, definitely in the years that I was, um, at the school just up the road, they those families, a lot of those families would come to church for different reasons, and they'd say afterwards, "Oh, it just felt like school at church." And um, although we did mention Jesus more, but but it was the same kind of atmosphere. And um, so we would have, we we we've I put on a um, memorial service for. Um, a parent at my school that was killed in a drug raid, a drug deal. And his partner um, wasn't invited to his funeral by the family. And she needed to she needed to go through the process of giving him something. So I said, why don't we do a memorial service for him? So she invited all her friends f- from the drug crowd. Um, so we had about 50 people. They were all really pale with dark circles under their eye and they smoke a lot. Um, and I had a bunch of people from my church. The ladies catered. Oh, boy, they did so much food. Christian women and food, they're so good. Um, and some old men said, could we just come along and do help somehow? And they sat on the floor with children and played with them so, because we did have kids running around and they stopped that happening. And I ran a service, Ross, my husband, was doing all the sound and gave these people an outlet. It was a really messy place. We we had candles fall over and start to burn up the table. We had um, people continually going outside to have a smoke. It, it went just over half an hour. It was not long at all. And at the end... I didn't mention God until the end when I wanted to talk about the comfort that he brings and the more people left. Um, but uh, there was this amazing... Um, for the people in my church, it was such a gift that we could give them. And afterwards we had some people say to us, um, one guy especially said, I watch the people you hang around with and I believe that if I could hang around with them, I would learn how to be someone who is good because how you love people is amazing and I, know, I want to know about that. Um, and he was, he was very much part of that crowd and he just, he'd noticed me at school and the mentors and now at church and we ended up giving him a mowing job at our church just so he could hang around Christians because he said, I feel like they're the ones that could maybe give me the answers to life. We didn't get very far with him, but for a few months there, we loved him well. Um, but I, we had a family where there was a, a mum and a dad who had... Um, he'd transgendered into a woman, so there was a mum and a, another mum. And the five children, all of them didn't cope with how dad is now mum. And they came to our church and uh, from the school... Uh, we invited them to a Christmas Eve service where their kids were all involved in the drama. That's the way, you know, come and see your children. And the the new mum said no one would want this in their church. And I said, oh, I beg to differ. Once again, I went to the church and told them the story and they said, let's do this. And so when she turned up, I watched my small, beautiful church love 
this family, uh, which made everyone feel uncomfortable. And she was broken because she knew in, in the transitioning to a female met some needs in her, but it's wrecking her family. So she was very, a very sad, sad person. We wept with her at times. The, the church was amazing. So for six months before they moved back to New South Wales, our church embraced them beautifully. So, yeah. So your, your church... Uh, intentionally bought a property in the place where you knew you were going to, you know, you're already ministering, or was that? We was didn't. That, we didn't buy. It was. Or you leased it, or whatever. Yeah, it was a it was a railway hall, and yet we intentionally did that because yeah. through my chaplaincy, there were so many families that we had um, opened doors to that we thought, as a church, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. Proximity was important. Very. To actually be meeting in the same area where these people yeah. live and do life yeah. as opposed to taking somewhere more safe. And... Well, we lived on the other side of town where there's a lot of affluent churches. We live in a really nice area and um, and anything that end of town was, in a sense, diametrically opposed to the what we could have over there. So um, it just, it, it was in the neighbourhood. You know, the... In, in the message where Jesus stepped into the neighbourhood in John 1, mm. it felt like we needed to be in that neighbourhood. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very. Um, so we talked about, obviously, the chaplaincy and um, ministry with Rahab. Are there other outlets where this call to poverty is outworked in your life? Um, we, so for a while, Ross and I would run a, um, a lunch for lonely people that we still try and do some that was in our church and now that we're not part of that church that church literally closed totally down um it got too small and too financially we couldn't keep going um and so we're actually at the moment haven't got a church home because we still want to find a church that can reach those kind of people um so we we have some single mums that we um, as a family, um, love and care for. And my husband meets with quite a few depressed men, um, usually one-on-one, but sometimes with a little group because he's he's got a real... He's, I, I tend to... I love big crowds of people when I can. He's so good one-on-one. Just That's just his gifting. And there's these men that, that need strengthening just because he listens. Um, it was really good because he's been sick for a few years and they've actually reached out to him. So that's given them, that's kind of strengthened them and empowered them in their walk and it's helped them to look outside their little world. But um, also there's a few ex-sex workers that I've gotten to know that have left the industry and and um, we've a few of us have been able to love really well along the way. Um, one who's given her life to Jesus and one who um, has gone to God Squad and sat in Bible studies to try and make sure she doesn't go back to her addictive lifestyle. So I'm really loving what, how God has embraced them in that, in their search for truth. It's been lovely. So that, I think I'm really called to single mums who are lonely and Ross to men who are struggling with their mental health, yeah. You talked about since the congregation you led has had to shut down not necessarily finding a church home um, as in a church where there is a heart for the kind of people that you're describing do you think it should be a given that any church congregation has a heart for yeah. people that you're talking about yeah is and it, is that a disappointment to you it 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 yes <laughs> um but I think a church can can have a heart for it, but they're set up in a way that those people would feel scared to be, to turn up. Um, I think there's a lot of churches that maybe not even in their programs, which which I think is wonderful because it's not all about programs, are doing those things with families, but it's outside uh, their church itself, which is also great because I'm a big believer of going outside the walls of a church. But I think there's still a lot of churches who who want to do that, who present as having it all together, whether it's through their buildings or their programs or just the people that turn up that make it hard for um, people of 
maybe other nations, Indigenous people, people who struggle financially to feel like that could be their place. So, um, but, you know, then we have other places that are really able to do that. So we just, we also need to, to find out uh, what little body is doing that and, uh, and probably we want to go to a smaller place um, what body is doing that that we can also feel um, called to you know so it's it's an interesting moment and my husband's been really sick and hasn't been able to attend where there's crowds and he's just starting to now so it's it was on hold for a while I was going to different churches um, but it's good to start going again together so there's been online and all that um, but, you know, even just having a home group and, and because that's where pastoral care really happens, isn't it, in a small group where people can look out for each other and, yeah. Do you think that... I mean, you obviously have a particular call from the Lord, which is, you know, you've been out work the last 20 years or more, even when you were in Bundaberg as well, but do you think that kind of call is universal for all Christians, that every Christian should have a heart to be interacting with these kind of people, or is it does the Lord really you know pick on <laughs> particulars and, do you know what I mean? Yeah I do um, it, like the scriptures talk about it is a universal thing, we should all yeah, yeah. you know, in some, in some level, but how do you perceive I mean, really, it, it talks about a real heart of worship is to reach the widows and the orphans and all that. So if we're not, what does that say about our worship? Mm, yeah. I, and yet I know there are many that are called to reach. I mean, we need people who are rich and affluent and all that to be reached. So I don't know that it's um, it's a hard thing. I think... I think we need to have a heart that doesn't reject anyone. Like, I don't, I don't know how to deal with a lot of rich people. <laughs> um, and, um, but I, I think of, I think of the, the people that Jesus, I, I guess it, I, I love the fact that I hang around the people that Jesus hung around with, but he also, like it, some of his disciples were affluent. Um, we we can't forget anybody, but it it would be awful if we saw people um, rejecting those. Um, I I remember a long time ago I listened to a a, a sermon um, at the church we were going to, and um, it was on the demoniac, um, and the guy was preaching about this this person roaming around the graveyard, cutting himself, screaming in the night. And and what, from where he started to when he finished, so for half an hour, I just wept the whole time. And it was the first time I realised why I wept. Because people would just say, oh, you cry a bit. Afterwards, the preacher, I went up to thank him. He said, oh, I watched you. You've got a heart of mercy. And so there are giftings in us that bring us to places that others might not step into. And um, my heart of mercy means that I spend a lot of time broken, but also I'm hanging around the people that, that are, I guess, like I said at the school, where it's an open weeping sore. I want to hang around the people that are willing to admit that they need mercy. And there are so many people that pretend they don't. And I... I find it easier for me to be around the ones that are admitting that they're in a mess. Um, and and sometimes all I do is sit and cry with them. Um, and there are so many other things I can't do because it's not my gifting or I or have to work harder at. I'm an encourager and and someone who's who's merciful and that, that the mercy part can be a real pain. <laughs> it can mean I don't sleep some nights because I'm aching so much for people. Um, so sometimes I wish I had the gifts of, um, you know, admin. <laughs> no, that no, that would be so boring. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I answered your question, no, but that's yeah. right. <laughs> um, after twenty years, 
28 years in Toowoomba, is that right? 29, 29 tomorrow. <laughs> um, you know, the scriptures talk about God hears the sound of those who are downtrodden and oppressed and broken. And when you think about Toowoomba and um, that cry of pain or oppression, what, what does it... This, maybe this is a bit vague and maybe it's hard to answer as well, but what does it sound like to you? Mm. Mm. Like what, and what, how can the church better tune into that sound or, you know, um, yeah, tune into, take, pay more attention to um, hear what God hears? I, um, I have to say I have never felt um, the pain of a city till Toowoomba because I was just busy living my life. I I would hopefully be a loving, caring person wherever I went. But I never I didn't know what it meant to to work in unity with other people until really until I came here. Um and it was it's was working alongside others who had discovered the pain that showed me some of that. Um so I'm in a different era in the in the last in my first 35 years I I didn't know that I could hear a pain interesting I guess individuals I knew of whereas here it um I feel like it's it's in the places that are dark and hidden and um and where there's hopelessness I've Last year there was a day when they said that my husband probably wasn't going to live and it's the first time in my life that I felt hopeless. I've had kind of hopeless situations before, but in there there was a thread of hope. I've had a you know, son who had brain surgery and nearly died, but I still had hope, whereas this one day I felt hopeless and I thank God for that because it gave me an inkling of what people must feel who don't know where to turn for hope. And it's... I feel like there's a cry from those who don't know God and don't know hope and don't know hopeful people and so they're lost in a place that doesn't have any answers. And so to me, if I come across someone who is struggling to find any shred of hope, that I hear that pain really loudly um, because I think if we have hope in, in anything, then we can last for the next day, you know. Um, and so it's really hard to answer that question but I, I don't, it, hopelessness can be someone who is in a great job at, with a family um, it can be someone who's, who has no family and who drinks a lot and each day is the same so I think I ask the Lord to, to show me is where is there someone that needs hope and that's what I would personally like to maybe bring into a a relationship every time I meet with someone. Mm.